It is truly insane that you just put a lollipop <laughs> into your mouth. <laughs> and welcome to Got the Runs, the podcast with all the sexual chemistry of a girl and a boy who you might never meet. <laughs> the e-boy that she connected with on Archive of Our Own. <laughs> I- it's of course a writing forum. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm sure she was getting lots of writing done. Uh, yeah, I took that to be a writing forum in the same vein as like you know Wattpad is also kind of a writing forum if you think yeah, about sure. it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, like, I mean, in, at this time it was like Live Journal, right? Yeah, I, I guess, guess does so. that count as a writing form? That's more of like a blog. It's, yeah, it really is more of a blog. I mean, forums. I guess that you could have a forum for pretty much anything in two thousand three, two thousand two, whenever it was. Mm-hmm. Early two thousands. Early two thousands. Yeah, I mean, our knowledge, perhaps. Well, uh, we were a little internet. oblique. Yeah, well, we, we, yeah, it might have been a little early for us, for sure. By writing forum, do you think that? They meant a Fire Emblem role-playing forum like the ones we were on. <laughs> I, I doubt it, personally. Um, but it's possible. But it's not outside the realm of possibility, certainly. Certainly. Uh, great start. This is <laughs> Got the Rods. And leave it the lollipop thing, by the way. Yeah, I figured you wanted that. Because <laughs> that truly was crazy. That as we were doing our classic <laughs> recordings, you placed a, a sort of yellow and orange yin yang lollipop. Blueberry lemon. <laughs> Crazy. Gluten free. Uh, <laughs> most lollipops. <laughs> I, I think most lollipops are, but this one's packaging does go out of the way to tell me it's certified vegan and gluten free. <laughs> I could see them possibly having some gelatin in them, some types. Sure. sure, 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 sure. So this is Got the Runs. <laughs> Your number one we are... uh, lollipop podcast. Honestly, what would even be number two? Uh, uh, I'm carefully keeping myself from saying lollycast as I almost did. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, are you a real Stillman type? Oh. Uh, <laughs> this is the beginning of a brand new miniseries, which is a terrible thing thing that we've done uh, in terms of the way we've introduced this episode, not in terms of this miniseries, because this is very exciting. We have finished Margin Satrapi. What a quick miniseries that was, but a mm-hmm. wonderful one. Uh, and we are now diving into our new... Cre- I guess I don't really need to build it up because we talked about it at the end of the last yes. episode. And but I'll have tweeted about it at this point, certainly. And it's the title of the episode, etc. <laughs> All that good stuff, yep. <laughs> but we are, of course, covering the work of Brian Leo Malley, the Canadian cartoonist, David. I'm sure there will be so much Canada talk because... There simply must be. Because Brian Leo Malley, and let's just dive right in here... From London, Ontario, our yes. hometown. I did. I don't think I knew this because I always, obviously, he has such a strong association with Toronto. Yes, yes. But he did attend St. Thomas Aquinas, good old STA yeah, as the, we know it. <laughs> he did, he did, yeah. So he he was born in London. I'm not sure where he went to elementary school. Um, <laughs> you know, a downtown type. I'm guessing he was uh, STA's downtown, right? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think, think it's, it's more. It's isn't it at like Adelaide and no no no. Or it's on it's Wellington. Like, 
It's like West End. It's not Oxford, but like really West. Huh. Okay. Maybe. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, you're right. Yes, he is. He was born in London, moved to Northern Ontario as a relatively young child, and then moved back to London for high school to attend STA. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any associations with STA? Because I feel like that was never one that was it's, in my uh purview. yeah yeah it's it's really too far away from where we lived to even like know the sta kids like even the catholic kids in the area all went to mother Teresa, not sta so i'm not even sure if i ever knew anyone who went to sta other than like i may have met some people at western who who were sta alumni but i know i don't i don't really have any associations i don't either uh, speaking of Western, your alma mater, Indeed. also Brian Lee O'Malley's uh, kid. Is it an alma mater if he didn't graduate? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. But yes, after high school, he went to the University of Western Ontario, as it was then known today, f- really sticking to their guns as Western University, a change that I, as uh, an alumni, uh, give a big old dumb down thumb to. Don't like it. Like we're... <laughs> <laughs> it is, I will say, officially still the University of Western Ontario. But like, like I was, so I'm taking a, a course through a different institution currently, and I was trying to get access to an article that I didn't have institutional access to through that institution. And so I was like, well, I'm like a, an alumni member at Western, like maybe I still have library access through this. And I couldn't f- find it for a long time because it was like officially listed in the database as Western University to go in nitty gritty on uh, on <laughs> a, a university that is famously in southern Ontario. Anyways, is it the westernmost university in Ontario though, do we think? Uh, I, I guess one of imagine. like the way up north ones yeah. could be further west and Windsor could also theoretically be slightly further west. Yeah, I'm not sure. We really can't get into <laughs> all the nitty gritties. But yes, he attended the University of Western Ontario to study film. May have even studied under the same professor that I took my undergrad film class with, uh, whose name I don't remember. Although that guy also, the year I graduated, was launching a like seminar Comic? class on the graphic novel. Yeah, so <laughs> hmm. so uh, that would uh, that would be funny, but. Um, Certainly, you, to be clear, you were not attending at the same time. No, no. He's Roughly, a, you know, 10 years apart. I yeah, he's, a, he's about 10 years older than me. So we were not there at the same time. I did, though, read like an interview with him recently where he was talking about like, you know, his development as a comics creator and how he got into um, like the more independent scene because he was hanging out so much at the happiest place on earth, Heroes, Cards and Comics in London, Ontario, uh, where like chatting with the staff, they like turned him onto Bone. And that was kind of like, it it wasn't the beginning of like his comics creating journey because he well we can talk about this a bit more but he he has been like making comics casually or like you know as a as a form of expression for basically his entire life but i think that being introduced to some of those indies and especially the black and white indies which characterizes most of his most popular work at least in its original form was sort of like a hey this is like kind of uh, an avenue i'm interested in pursuing professionally and like something that i could see myself doing like as my job, um, you know, and, and sort of taking, taking it all up to the next level. Mm-hmm. So and big, big plug for heroes in London. If you are uh, an Ontario <laughs> resident, it's, it's truly 
you know, I haven't been to every comic shop in the province, certainly, but I do think that it is a contender for one of the best shops in the province and therefore one of the best shops in the country because Ontario is just like one of the most densely populated provinces. So I can't I can't recommend it highly enough, whether you are local or visiting, it is worth uh, going in there and meeting the very friendly staff and perusing the extremely extensive catalog of comics of all genres and types. Yes, and who among us hasn't been turned on to Bone? <laughs> <laughs> I'd hope you are. Uh, <laughs> that's the one with the Zoe Deschanel sister, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's very rude to Emily. Uh <laughs> But yes, I, I was I was curious because he seems, you know, he goes to Western, he drops out, probably safe to say, sometime in either like the late 90s or around the turn of the millennium. Y2K bug, maybe his computer was destroyed <laughs> <laughs> and he was forced to leave school, something like that. Uh, but so like pretty quickly afterwards, he hooks up with Oni Press, which is this, you know, uh independent publisher based in Oregon though because in in my mind because I always associate Oni Press so directly with Brian Lee O'Malley I was like well they must be Canadian like they're probably based in Toronto but they're based in Oregon so I, I am very curious how he ends up like hooking up with them then becomes like an illustrator and he like letters comics and then eventually presumably at that time he's also working on lost at sea which is what we we're discussing today yes so he he actually moved to california for a bit before moving to toronto that was kind of like the in-between western and and moving to toronto was that he went to california for like six months basically like with some friends um and and this is like 2000 so 2000 end of 2000 beginning of 2001 he goes to uh, California with a bunch of friends and I think that is very much in the DNA of this book of course yeah where they were making an image comic like they had they had landed uh, an image comic and got him to do some design with them and he was lettering some of the pages and he basically says like it was like basically like fake <laughs> as far as like being a, a job um, but it got him like a professional credit which got him like creator passes to conventions that he could then go to for free um which he then like was able to meet a bunch of people in both like he so he he did like some games work hmm. so he he met the guys who um started udon studios and then eventually started gaia online i don't know if you're familiar with that <laughs> i'm familiar with gaia online certainly um so he he like did some some like loose light stuff with them before gaia online was a thing so he <laughs> did not <laughs> get to like reap the benefits of that but then like through the convention circuit he met james lucas jones who isn't that's a name that like people who are familiar with oni might recognize he's the editor of lost at sea and has been or, or i'm not sure if he's still there actually but he was an editor um, at Oni for a long time and and has been an editor of like some big name series. So he is kind of, uh, James Lucas Jones is kind of the guy who like loops O'Malley into the Oni stuff. So I guess the the color strips that we were talking about just before we started, that was something that Oni put on their website. Basically, 
because O'Malley was pitching them Lost at Sea. They were like, let's see some samples. He put these strips together. They were like, let's put this on the website. And so they were like, they were interested in him as a creator. They were interested in Lost at Sea. But then in the meantime, they were kind of like, well, you know, like we can always use like an artist and like we have some gigs. So I know, like, I remember I reread Queen and Country by Greg Rucka and various artists recently and was kind of like, what the Brian Lee O'Malley is like credited on the cover of this now, which makes sense. But it's like he like inked two issues and lettered one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they, they gave him basically a bunch of kind of miscellaneous artwork, the biggest of which was penciling the a mini series of the hopeless savages series uh by jen van meter who is greg rucka's partner which is like do you know anything about hopeless savages probably not i do not i was it's, uh, vaguely it's, looking at this as as we were sort of leading Im- into recording imagine uh teletoon series my dad the rock star with like oh boy <laughs> what a, like a bit what of a, a like, horrific crime <laughs> a bit of a crime bent um i have not read uh ground zero which is the miniseries that he did nor could i like find a copy of it anywhere but the original hopeless savages miniseries is about the kids of uh this like aging like punk icon couple who they like the parents are kidnapped and then the kids kind of have to like reconvene after having their relationships to the parents and the family be in sort of like various states of goodness or badness they all kind of have to like pull back together to save their parents and uh uh, come to terms with like their punk legacy and they all have like crazy names (laughs) i Mm -hmm. so i know Yes, you're you're aware. <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking at the names. They're very good, but the one I'm most interested in is that one of them is named Twitch Strummer, which is very <laughs> which is very prescient. Uh, yes, the main character is uh, of course Skank Zero Hopeless Savage. Uh, that their last name is Hopeless Hyphen Savage, hence Hopeless Savages, and then they all have very like punk names. <laughs> um, Yes, Rat Bastard, Arsenal Fierce, Twitch Strummer, and Skank Zero. And I hope Twitch Strummer will be playing some uh, (laughs) Minecraft with me. You can catch Twitch Strummer on the live stream uh, when when we start those up. Anyways, so he was doing like all that stuff for Oni. And so he did this mini series and was kind of like, oh, I actually, like, can't do monthly comics. <laughs> like, I literally, like, am, like, physically incapable of of doing a monthly comic, especially if I have to ink it. He was supposed to pencil and ink the whole thing, and by the third issue of four, uh, someone had to come in and take over the inking because he just, like, couldn't keep up. So, so he, like, kept doing that stuff, but he changed the plan with Lost at Sea, which was originally going to be a miniseries. They're like, no, we're going to do... Uh, an original graphic novel instead and, and I mean, so the, the length of it ends up being basically yeah the length is pretty much unchanged it was it was more so the like if you I, like i can't put this out on a monthly basis basically unless i just draw like the whole thing in advance and if i'm gonna do that then like why don't we just do <laughs> <laughs> right. a graphic novel basically so yeah so 2003 uh he starts kind of like officially working on that for oni press he is at the same time working at the beguiling which is a shop in toronto a comic shop in toronto i have many uh comics in my uh 
in my collection with beguiling stickers on the back of them because for some reason a like ton of them ended up at heroes like i have no idea why but if you ever go digging through their back issues or they're like on sale trades a lot of them still just have price stickers from the beguiling on them and i'm just like i don't know how or why these are here but um but they are so cheers to me yeah (laughs) yeah so that's that's kind of the origin story yes right and i'm sure once we start talking about scott pilgrim that's when we'll start talking more about like the The toronto Toronto of it all yeah yeah and like the music of it all because you know the another thing that i find very interesting is his like connection to music he is a musician himself yes as kupek the only one musical illusion i think in this one musical illusion um and and what would that be i may have missed it in the car they're listening to a cd which i googled the lyrics and it is sloan were you ever into sloan um there is one sloan song that i know and recall liking but i can't remember the name of it but it is like the sloan song is it money city maniacs i don't think so there's also if it feels good do it which is the one that i know uh, but money city maniacs of course i thought was like a big song and i also thought it was from like the 80s uh <laughs> it is like a very canadian sounding song in a weird way um like it almost gives you like kim mitchell vibes i think kim mitchell might be canceled but it gives me some some gopher soda vibes in some ways uh but yeah, that's so. That's the one. Uh, Money City Maniacs is the one that like it starts with like a really like a long siren and then like a rock riff. So like you've probably mm-hmm. heard it like overheard at a hockey game or something to that effect. Very very possible. Yeah, they they definitely exist in the zone, which is like my biggest musical blind spot generally, which is like 1991 to 2003, um, and. They they just like are a genre of rock that I have never been that into. That's interesting because I was like these. I feel like they would be like right up your alley because they are sort of like late nineties, early two thousands, like sort of white stripes ish, sort of strokes ish. Like Franz Ferdinand was the main one I thought of. Yeah, see, those are like those are all examples of artists who have like one song that I like, and it's like the song that kind of sounds nothing like their other songs, <laughs> right? So, so that kind of like does so. They're ju- they're just like a little too grungy, a little too like hard, I guess, in some ways for me. <laughs> That's too hard. I, I, like, I have hard is maybe the wrong word, but but um, they're they're like they are very very rocky in like a yeah. very straightforward way or like jet would be another band that's like we're rockers yeah like the <laughs> the like post once you get past kind of like the 70s anyone who can like strictly be described as rock um kind of starts right. to lose lose steam with me partly because it like it just starts getting closer to like what we think of as rock today as opposed to the rock of the 60s and 70s which is really like uh, you know there's obviously a lot of like folk and a lot of pop and a lot of blues in all of those all of which are genres that i would say i kind of gravitate more towards sure (laughs) so lost at sea (laughs) now that we've (laughs) extensively laid the groundwork do we do we want to do our quick plot summary sure start the clock (laughs) good afternoon Uh, (laughs) how many episodes do you think before we get tired of that bit (laughs) i was gonna say that's at least the second time that i've gotten you i think it's maybe the third (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyways, would you like to do this or, would I, or shall I? Because uh, there's not a ton of plot in this book, yeah, I will I, say. I am happy to take it. I've started the clock. Uh, so the story about of Lost at Sea, it is about an 18-year-old uh, Vancouverite named Raleigh who has just graduated from high school, who is on a road trip with three other kids from her high school who, as we learn over time, she doesn't actually know that well. She just kind of, by happenstance, ended up in this car with them. Um, and basically, like, the... the full plot summary of the story basically is like she meets this e-boy on fanfiction.net she goes to california to meet him um has a good time and then has sort of like a, an existential depressive crisis over a note that he writes her and then uh, sort of has to like rediscover herself as she travels back to vancouver with these four or these three other kids uh, and in the process forge a relationship uh, that surely will last a lifetime uh, and, and she thinks she lost her soul and they go yeah. looking for it <laughs> that's, that's also part of it that that is like weirdly the log line which because like that like when you read like plot summaries or whatever or, like the back of the book it's always like raleigh doesn't have a soul like that's like the like really punchy one yeah. line but really and like that is kind of like the on-ramp to the story too like it, it sort of opens up with her being like i don't have a soul i used to i'll like explain that later but just like know that i don't have a soul yeah which is weird because like on one hand i suppose that is like the log line of the book or like the overarching running story of the book but like I don't know if it. I fully understand, like, why is she, like, I don't have a soul? Just because, like, certainly, you know, she, she is going through a very, like, 18-year-old-ish or, like, late teens kind of period in her life, it feels mm -hmm. like, where it's like, why am I like this? Well, yeah, I think she probably has, like, a diagnosable mental illness of some well, kind she certainly has like, like anxiety depression. Or, yeah, or anxiety or both and i think the like i have no soul is kind of just how she like thinks of her condition basically because she's presumably never been like assessed she doesn't have a diagnosis you know it's the early 2000s she probably like doesn't even it wouldn't even occur to her that she might have something that could be diagnosed. And so the way that she thinks about it is I don't have a soul, which, which explains kind of like the like empty feeling or like absence of emotions and, and sort of like disengagement with like anything in her life that should sort of interest her. Yeah. Because I feel like that is like, to me, that stuff is the most effective and like relatable parts of this book that it's like, being someone that you don't like but not really understanding why and not really understanding how you can change it and especially like with anxiety like i never had social anxiety to the degree that raleigh has but i feel like like you know i think a lot of people can relate to that idea of like i don't know how to respond in social situations everyone else that because that's the big thing it's sort of like because these are friends but not friends their peers mm -hmm. and like sort of judging yourself by that benchmark of people that seem normal is a very common like teen thing certainly yeah for sure 
this is very much like a if like if Scott Pilgrim is a little bit more autobiographical in terms of some of the sort of like life circumstances, I would say this is sort of like an emotional autobiography for O'Malley Mal, as he is uh, affectionately referred to by both himself and his uh, his friends. It seems um, where like he yeah he often talks about like in some ways like Raleigh is more me than Scott Pilgrim is um or or like there's more of me in raleigh because like this book basically was is like how i processed my own sort of like late teenage early 20s like years and like i was in my early 20s and like you know everyone in their early 20s has these kind of like heightened emotional feelings and so mine i just like put into this girl who is in my story and then he like can't remember if it was a video i saw a video interviewer if it was written somewhere but i i saw somewhere where he talked about it and he was like yeah i decided to like do more comedy in scott pilgrim because i showed this book to my friends and it made them really uncomfortable <laughs> i if, <laughs> Which, my, if my friend was like i made this i'd be like you good um, but yeah that that's that's an interesting point because uh you know i want to talk a little bit about like his decision to have a female main character certainly um but that is interesting that you brought that up because i do feel like scott pilgrim the character is sort of defined by like his lack of internality to some extent like he is very is it is it id between it uh, and ego yeah like i feel like his he is like so and a lot of the humor in scott pilgrim is like he like is driven so directly by his circumstance <laughs> and it's like if something good happens to him he's like yes i'm so freaking good and then if something bad happens it's like no i'm so freaking bad he is uh, he is definitely a butch type uh in some ways uh i'm trying to remember those like archetypes that the zot characters are supposed to fall into but but he is yeah he's certainly sort of like an archetypal character in the same way who is like so much yeah just just driven by <laughs> the the people and the circumstances around him as opposed to like this book so much of it is like just like her thoughts in her head being projected to the reader slash stillman uh slash herself <laughs> um, right because yeah that is the the sort of narrative tack it takes that like she is right quote unquote writing to someone but you know it's really just her thoughts and it's ostensibly addressed to stillman but she's not really sure about that she certainly seems conflicted about it it's yeah it's really just her thoughts um just what she's feeling at the time yeah i uh, for some <laughs> reason i knew you were going to say that because i, I bring that up all the time <laughs> which is uh I believe the to what more can I say by Jay Z and not the rulers back, which are two different uh, opening tracks on two different Jay Z <laughs> albums uh, and two different uh, NBA 2K games. I'm pretty no, I'm pretty sure it is from the rulers back because that is the one that is on the NBA 2K14, 2K14. soundtrack, which is a game I have logged <laughs> so many hours on. <laughs> It can't be spoken. <laughs> I do have, like, it immediately triggered an image of, like, it's your laptop and, like, a janky Xbox 360 controller is plugged into it yes. for you to play so, the previous-gen version <laughs> of NBA 2K14. That is correct. Um, shortly before I got married, of course, our other brother Steven and I lived together for a period of months, and 
it was certainly a common scene that he would be like reading a book on the couch of the living room of uh, the house that we shared together and I would be on the floor playing NBA 2K14 on my like ThinkPad <laughs> using a plugged in Xbox 360 controller and then I have my phone propped up covering the scoreboard because uh, obviously I was winning by such an insane margin that I didn't need to track <laughs> the team's score just my personal stats and on that I would be playing like you know, whatever TV series I was making my way through at the time. Oh, truly demented stuff. (laughs) Uh, Good times. Now I'm medicated, so I don't need to do that. Uh (laughs) That's good. Uh, Uh, Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's just her thoughts, just what she's feeling at the time. Right, right or wrong. Yeah, and I gotta say, like, largely wrong, I feel like. Like, he definitely, what he does very well in this book is capture, like exactly the sort of thing it's it's really something that i feel like i talk about a lot with a series that i'm a weirdly big booster for spider-man loves mary jane which is that like they both are good at capturing the reality of being a teenager which is that like when you look at it from like a remove or a distance it seems like so small and like embarrassing like it, like in this book it's like so she like she's having this freak out because like Stillman wrote her a letter and she doesn't even know what it says like she's literally just freaking out about what it might say but then it's like yeah yeah like sure it sounds like stupid when you sum it up like that but when you are like living it in the moment as an 18 year old it feels like like the biggest deal in the world and I think he does a good job of like showing how it becomes the biggest deal in the world while also like preemptively acknowledging like she's going to be like so embarrassed about this whole episode in like (laughs) you know in five years like she and Steph will like look back at this and be like that was like pretty messed up eh like that was that was like kind of a crazy like trip that we took together that time well and the thing is I think that she is also embarrassed about it at the time, which is like, which I think is a very like late teens, like young adulthood kind of feeling where it's like, I still have these like, not, I don't want to say childish feelings, but like, mm-hmm. I have these like sort of illogical teenagerish right. feelings, but then I'm also able to recognize that they're illogical, but then that makes it even more frustrating. Yeah. Because like, like I know that these things are stupid in a sense, but like, that knowledge doesn't change my like current experience of them right and it makes it worse because yeah. then you're like oh like clearly because I'm you, stupid. you know if you like tell anyone about it they would be like that's stupid and you would be like i know <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but like <laughs> sure and really ultimately like all she like the the emotional like climax or like re- resolution of all of these feelings is re- literally just for like someone to validate her like truly she just needs to like (laughs) talk to one person and have that person acknowledge that like her experience is not like unique to her and that like it's okay it's okay to not be okay which i feel like uh, you know is a very sort of pat phrase now but maybe you know almost 20 years ago now probably felt a lot more like i think that acknowledgement is like an important thing certainly for like teenagers to go through yeah. And I think another thing that I appreciate about it is that 
like we don't get that like flash forward like eight months later like here's raleigh like living and thriving she's like the it girl at ubc and steph is her best friend and like you know her life is completely turned around like there's a segment where she sort of like speculates and is kind of like i can imagine like exactly how the next like five years of my life are going to unfold with these like three kids who I didn't even know and like now like I'm gonna date them and be their best friend and like it's gonna be this whole thing but like it's it's presented in such a way of sort of like yeah that could happen like a million things could happen and it's sort like I think I think it ties in really well as well with one of the sort of like apocryphal little like post comics where we see Steph and one of the two guys Ian Dave. I don't, I don't know which is which. <laughs> One of the, the two guys, guys are kind of just like guys. Yeah, are are hanging out anyways, and and he is like about to like move away to start university is kind of what I inferred uh, at the end of the summer, and and so it sort of like ties into that as well of being like a lot of things could happen, but it captures that sort of like the summer after high school feeling of like even if you feel like you know what is going to happen, there's also still sort of the feeling of like anything could happen and it like, it could be positive. It could be negative, but the the sort of like potential that is like soon to be realized, I guess is, is sort of brought forward, but, but we're not given something that is like simple and clean as far as like, and it all works out for Raleigh, like just like it will for all of you out there who are feeling like this, (laughs) because like, yeah, I think that he's the kind of guy who knows that like it's not necessarily gonna like work out great for everybody and like he he made this post that was sort of about his like journey into comics that I, I pulled a lot of the info from that we talked about at the top and he says like in his like timeline of his career he says like in late 2008 and into 2009 I actually made money off of comics so it's like he's you know he's the kind of guy who knows that like you can experience all of that you can like grow through it you can sort of like be mature into the adult that you will become and that doesn't mean that like your life is going to like be solved and and, like you know at this point he's still working like three jobs and taking like literally any like crap gig in the industry he can get if it means that like he gets to make another comic or like be involved in making another comic because he's still like he's he's still trying to to prove that he can like be in the industry and be a comics professional and like probably at the point that he's writing this like wouldn't even say he's a comics professional he's like a comics gig worker who has a real job like minding the the counter at the local comic shop right yeah and you know i think there are a lot of sort of interesting emotional things that this book gets into like uh one thing i wanted to talk about was sort of like the idea of these the two characters like her best friend who is she even named i don't think so i don't think so either Uh, but that's that's also like an autobiographical thing a little bit because he if you it's actually really funny if you go on his instagram he's got a story called about me and the first several of them are this like parody comic that he made in like the early 90s called brian's version of x power (laughs) (laughs) the joke is that um it's like an x-men parody except all the characters are like spider-man and deadpool and he like made a 
a like foil cover variant out of tin foil that he like <laughs> <laughs> he like took a sheet of tin foil and then like cut out all the characters and like glued them on anyways it's it's his like look at what i used to do to like make comics for fun but he made those with his like best friend conrad who then moved away and so like it, it's it's just very like you know reading lost at sea it's like you know you can it's it's so obvious how like the experience of having this best friend who like they were two weirdos together who made like parody x-men comics together and probably were like the best of friends and then they both moved away to different towns and it's like yeah that probably sucked a lot <laughs> yeah and such a big thing that you know for raleigh certainly it's like having and i think it's such a big thing when you're like a teenager it's just like having someone who it feels like understands you but also like that you don't need to ever like verbalize that understanding with in a way like the fact that because you know like that's sort of what she talks about a lot with Stillman is just like it was easy it was natural and like that is sort of what is important to her is just like having that like level of comfort with someone so that like you don't need to like talk about your problems because it is like easy for you and then maybe that's sort of like the transition into adulthood where it's like it's you know when you're younger it's great to just have someone who like just distracts you from your problem or like understands your problem sort of implicitly and then this is sort of more like well like grown-ups talk about their feelings (laughs) yeah and also just like having someone who makes you feel better is not going to like solve the underlying problems that you have especially her who seems like you know (laughs) <laughs> she seems like she has a tough go of it a lot of the time, I will say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly so much of that is is just how she perceives herself. There's a real, you know, looking glass self uh, uh, type beat uh, on her where like so much of what she does, she's like reacting to how she thinks people are perceiving her as opposed to like how they are actually perceiving her or how they're actually responding to her. And we see that when Steph is like, basically like you're so tall and hot and cool and she's like what are you talking about (laughs) and she's like sorry like you are and everybody like thinks so but she doesn't like you know she's she's never perceived herself in those ways and so she reacts to what she assumes people are seeing in her which is like the awkward weird girl with no soul yeah and that's you know again that's another very teacher thing is just like the inability to understand you know maybe that's not just a teenager thing maybe that's just a people thing to like being unable to understand how you are perceived by other people and so like your conception of yourself especially because she is so internal that her conception of herself is so different from like what people see in her and you know i think people do see that she is like self-contained you know i think they say as much at one point and like very internal but yeah, yeah when you don't when you're not party to the internality, then like <laughs> you just sort of see like a person who's maybe like yeah. a little aloof. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I definitely do think it's an all people thing. And though also I think that like at the same time, like teenage girls definitely probably more so, or like to, to a greater extent, both like feel judged by everyone around them. Um, and, and feel, like you know just just have like a very strong or clear social image maybe this is changing these days but certainly like when i was in high school and and i'm i would bet even more so when o'malley was in high school like there's sort of this clear social image of like how teenage girls are supposed to be and and like of what women are supposed to be and 
so like the the pressure to meet that you know is is naturally going to make it a lot easier for you to sort of look around and say like well how are how am i being perceived by other people in relation to this sort of like standard that has been so like clearly socialized into me as opposed to like you know sure like I, I could i could be walking down the street and be like i wonder what like how that person random person sees me as i like pass by but it's like a completely different experience i think for yeah i i just think a teenage girl due to a combination of sort of like the social nature of a high school <laughs> the world's most twisted laboratory and and sort of like just social expectations generally means that they they just are like at greater threat to that or or more susceptible to being sort of pushed into that kind of thinking yeah and i also think that that is maybe like a male versus female thing and we can get into sort of like the the interesting gender dynamics at play here but i think that is like sort of a thing where men maybe like a lot of you know and obviously this isn't universally true but i feel like men often like have the luxury of not being perceived if that makes sense you know whereas women it's like there is like just more natural attention on women both like from men and from other women which I feel well, like, like sort of plays into yeah. that. Yeah, like appearance has always been such a big thing for women in a way that it has not always been for men and usually is not for men that it's like yeah, I think I think that the like it's very easy to perceive and understand that like when you go out in public there is like a sort a certain like consumption that happens where people take in your appearance and do like make some level of value judgment based on it whether that's like the grossest and like most sexual possible version or whether it's just like you know i am i am like in some way attracted to that person whether that's like in terms of like a romantic or sexual attraction or just like that is like a person who looks nice or whose appearance like communicates something to me about sort of like who they are or what they're interested in and therefore like I want to know them and that just like doesn't always and doesn't usually happen in the same way with men yeah and I think it's such an interesting choice and maybe that like what we've been talking about is a big part of that but like that he did choose to have a female character centering like his first graphic novel like his first major work because like in a way Scott Pilgrim you know, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a first comic, but it kind of feels like what it feels like a comic that a comics guy would write. If that makes sense, like Scott Pilgrim feels more representative of the internality of like a standard like comics fan guy yeah. than Lost at Sea might. Yeah, I like. I definitely think that O'Malley like possibly even to this day is like maybe one of the best examples of the sort of like fan made good if that makes sense mm -hmm. or or like truly a guy who like I, i'm not even really sure how to how to phrase it exactly it's not that like he doesn't care about the craft of making comics like i don't think that's true but i think that making comics is such like a natural form of self-expression for him and and his like love of comics and joy in comics and in video games and in music is all something that like comes to him so naturally that his like he he like hasn't lost the like fanboy by becoming part of like the professional industry and i think that comes through in his work i think it comes through in interviews um and just like he he doesn't like think about 
the things that he makes or consumes in the way that even like like people like you and me would who are sort of like you know it's we we do a lot of like intellectualizing on this podcast whereas like i read an interview with him where someone was asking him about like his changing art style between scott pilgrim and seconds the book he did after and and saying like i understand like you you like really got into tezuka like after scott pilgrim and like we're trying to incorporate that into your art like what did you pick up from tezuka um and he was just kind of like uh like i don't know that i picked up anything like i just i just like really loved his art <laughs> and like like you know like he he can't even really like express what he learned because he's not thinking about it in terms of like what can i how can i become a student of tezuka and like learn right. something from him he's just looking at it and being like this is so awesome this is so much fun to read this art is so cool and then he's not being like how can i do that with my art he's just like drawing because he likes to draw and then seeing like oh this is kind of like you know this is this is getting a bit more of like the tezuka vibe for me that's cool and now i can't remember what we were originally talking about <laughs> except to say that like i just i just think that he is like a very genuine guy and so it's not surprising to me that like in his work there is so much of him i guess yeah and you know i think that always gets back to like the level of formal training like i I don't think he was ever like formally educated in art or comics or anything like that which is you know that's always interesting to me like how someone comes to that because like that is so far outside of the realm of like what i would do just because like i'm not a visual person i'm not an artist well because our father uh truly raised us in a household where there's like a right way to do things and before you start anything you should figure out what the right way and like best way to do it is and then do that certainly we are all terrified of failure (laughs) um (laughs) But yeah, it, it is. I, I don't think it's even though like being terrified of failure. Like I think that is built into sort of like everything that that he does in terms of like if he wanted to get like a new set of headphones, he would like be like, okay, what's the best like headphones? Right. Because there is a best headphones, and I just need to figure out which ones they are and then buy them. Not because he's like scared of failing his ears, but like that's just like how he's wired. Right. I'm talking about us, not him. Uh, sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyways, we can... But I think I think we're all also like that, all of his yes, children. Yes, I, I think so as well. Uh, we can continue our family therapy later, certainly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it is, it is very interesting. Like, I think that is a good point that he sort of... He's not sort of... Doesn't... Maybe it's like doesn't buy into his own hype to some extent. Like... It's, he, he does seem like a very, like, humble person, and I think that that probably serves him very well. I haven't read any of his post-Scott Pilgrim work yet, so I'm, I'm very interested to, like, see what directions he takes in terms of the, the thematic nature of it. But, like, yeah, he does seem to be very, and this book is maybe, like, the best example of it, that he is sort of driven by, like, his own emotional journey and his own sort of, like, realizations about life and things like that, that, like that is what drives his work and maybe that's like again like sort of a a film thing that like if you're into movies before comics then maybe that makes you more light like less inclined to go towards like the superhero of it all like because like i think scott is a good example of someone who he start like his foundation is so comics and so then like what he is interested in is partly like myth making and like 
the nature of like superheroes and like the nature of like stories about characters like this and why we are interested in stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone like Brian, who is not coming from that background per se and is like more founded in movies, like there he's more interested maybe in the emotionality of it. And that is sort of just translated into a comic in the same way it would be translated into a film. And like, right. I think both him and Satra P are like, you know, it's like, this could be a comic or this could be a movie. And that's not to say that they don't make use of the medium that they're working in, but it's like, I want to tell this story and it is taking the form of a comic rather right. than like, I'm going to write a comic and like, it is about comics and here, <laughs> and here is my giant uh, thesis on like how comics work. Right. Yeah. I, I think that he is like, just in some ways, like a, tr- like a TM true artist. Uh, like that's true where, where, yeah, like I kind of said before, like, I think this is just kind of like naturally how he expresses himself. And, you know, there's a reason that he chose comics and like, he certainly has like some, some background in superheroes. Like I think superheroes were what sort of initially kicked off his interest in, the medium um and then and then he kind of grew and expanded into interest in other things and obviously there's a huge uh, manga influence that we will talk about probably when we talk about the art a bit more um but i i feel like whereas like scott for example really like latched onto comics as like a medium it's it's like like he talks about himself as the formalist like he's interested in like mm-hmm. the medium of comics as much as he is in like telling a story whereas i feel like for o'malley he's just kind of like making like documents of self-expression and it just so happens that his combination of like enjoying writing and enjoying art um and and all of those things sort of like come together and make it so that comics is the the medium that makes the most sense uh for him to do it in but but like yeah i i don't think he's per se like married to comics or that comics are like his biggest pure influence i know like like Diana Wynne Jones, I think is he someone he I've seen him talk about as being sort of like the first creator who really inspired him, and I know he really likes David Mamet as well. Um, That's interesting. Like like it, there's there's definitely, you know, he's his his comics influences are certainly like broad and and apparent, but mm-hmm. I do think it's clear that he is not. It's it's not so much that he is like married to comics as it is that he like he just like comics is what he gets and how he likes to express himself and if he was like wired a bit differently maybe he would make movies or write books but he's he i think comics is just what he does because it's what makes sense for him as sort of an artistic outlet for things that he would be looking for a way to let out regardless yeah and i think your sort of point about him being like a true artist is maybe that's where like the stuff in you know in Scott Pilgrim comes from or like in his own work comes from where it's like like you were saying with that interview like he can be a fan of something without sort of intellectualizing it and maybe that ability to like not sort of become like navel gazing or like you know sort of like metatextual in a way like I don't think and maybe I'm wrong I I you know, he probably does like think about the nature of comics a lot, but like, yeah, like I, I don't, I don't want to underplay his like interest yeah, exactly. in the craft per se. Like, he's a professional artist. Like, obviously, he it it, it takes a lot of dedication to craft to become 
a professional artist, especially when you consider like he didn't start off just like making his own like like cartooning full full blown making his own stories that he also does the art for like he started out doing the like what's the, what's the that like ship word the scut work or whatever of oh. uh, i can't remember what it's called but like he did he was like he was doing the odd jobs of comics he was lettering yeah. he was yeah. inking he you know like those are not things that you just like can do per se you know what i mean like mm. if he if he wasn't good at art like I couldn't letter a comic for a million dollars. <laughs> I couldn't ink a comic like to save my life. And and we're talking about like the the part of comics creation that like people who don't really understand what inking is basically say like isn't that just tracing? Like that's a classic. I think that's like in Mallrats or something. There's a whole scene of like the inker. Isn't that just like tracing? And it's like sure like at, at its like most basic level there's an element of like yeah, you just trace it. But like if I inked something <laughs> it would literally just be tracing it and it would not look good. Like, yeah, he, I mean, like he's a professional you, artist. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. And it all, what I was saying was certainly not to demean his like ability as an artist, but I think yeah, that yeah. I, I don't it's think more either about, of us has a low opinion of him as an artist, but like, because we are focused on sort of like, there's so much more to it for him than his craft. I just want to make it clear. Like we don't yes. think that he's like, not like <laughs> yeah. technically proficient. Although, you know, we'll talk about the art of this book, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, but I think more what I'm getting at is like the lack of pretension. Like he listens to a band and he's like i really like this band like i should incorporate this music into my work he's not like thinking about like what if i made a comic that like had music in it i'd like what would that mean i think he's more just like especially as opposed to like like we were talking briefly about kieran gillen before we started Mm -hmm. recording whose like big breakout work is phonogram which is him being like what if i made a comic that had music <laughs> and, like, and doing like exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It's not, yeah. I think that that, and again, like obviously neither one is right or wrong, but I think like what is great about his work and how he can sort of, to sort of maybe close the chapter on this little <laughs> circular conversation we're having that like he, he has the ability to like make this art without having that kind of like, like I said, like pretension about it. And obviously, like, that's neither a positive or a negative, I don't think. But, you know, it's I a think stylistic it, difference from other creators. Yeah. And I think it allows him to, to like, it, it allows the emotionality of it to come more to the forefront. And I think that that is what people latch on to is, like, the genuineness of the emotion and of, like, the love he has for the various things that he's depicting. Yeah. Like, I definitely can't imagine him making, like, one of the accordion books that, like, Scott talked about for his scripts where he, like, you know, thumbnails the entire book and, like, lays it out. Like, I can't can't imagine him doing something like that and could much more easily imagine him being the kind of creator who is, like, on this page I want to show this and, like, drawing just sort of like drawing what's in his head not looking at it slavishly in terms of like how does this panel like lead the eye or like like i think i think if he feels like the kind of guy for whom those things are just sort of like instincts and Mm -hmm. like he has he has like read enough comics and like drawn enough of his own comics just casually that like even if he doesn't necessarily look at it in terms of like how am i going to construct this panel he just has like done it enough and immersed himself in it enough that he's like well i know what a good panel looks like and like 
you know, sometimes that's all it takes. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that, you know, in comics and in other areas, like, that is what can make someone, like, an auteurist is just, or an auteur, is just, like, the lack of formalism around it. Because, like, you know, it's like, this is sort of the opposite of what we were talking about on the Persepolis episode with Eric Stiller when he was talking about Steve Vai. Um, <laughs> that, like, you can't break the rules until you know the rules. But I do... I think that that isn't necessarily true like in this case i think it's like he he is breaking the rules by virtue of just like he is going down the path that he wants and whether or not that path necessarily like intersects with what quote-unquote should be that that is like not super relevant to him yeah it's it's like a ways of knowing thing in some ways where it's like Sure, like some, it's some for some people, it's definitely true that you need to know the rules in order to break them. But then it's like, well, like whose rules? You know what I mean? Where, where, if he's coming at it from like just a different perspective, a different style, even like a different like tradition, you could almost call it. It's like, why does he need to know like the rules of like nine panel grid construction, like the twenty one panels that always work, blah blah blah. Like why? Like those those aren't actually rules. Those are like stylistic guides, right. and he's he's playing in a different style, and so obviously he doesn't need to know those rules because those rules like don't apply basically uh, Warren Beatty uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's la just, la land uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you're impossible that's gonna be my new one it's just the, her you're like impossible her like slapping him with the envelope <laughs> yes her like fun indignation at like the bit she thinks she is doing <laughs> it's so uh, funny to me but yeah and, and, you know we can we'll definitely talk about this more on a future episode but just to cap this off i think it's very interesting that he ends up not teaming up exactly but teaming up with edgar wright who i think is a perfect example of like the other approach as well who is right. like like the ultimate like formalist learn the rules and then break them kind of guy yes exactly but we will get into that on a future episode i'm quite sure Indeed. We have uh, kind of like throughout the past like 15 minutes talked around the art a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's let's just like take a take a moment to discuss the art, which is he he has a signature style for sure, mostly through the Scott Pilgrim books and which is like not quite on display here, but like he's pretty close. Yeah. Um, and I'm I well for I, I don't know where to begin. You, why don't you start with the, what were you going to say in terms of like the art being uh, maybe a little bit rawer than what you're used yeah, to from him? Yeah, I wasn't. I you know I don't think it's bad. I think it certainly fits the the book very well because the book is about like you know youthfulness in a lot of ways and like youthful mm-hmm. like emotions and inclinations and things like that. But it definitely is. I'll say unrefined or more unrefined because I think, you know, he certainly has a, I would not call like a super refined style. To, mm-hmm. I haven't seen, you know, his more recent stuff to be fair, but like, you know, it's, it seems very deliberately sketchy. Like sometimes the backgrounds will be like very fully rendered, but then sometimes it'll be like the, it'll those sort of be like scribbles. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, 
I haven't read Scott Pilgrim in a long time, so I'll be interested to see how it compares. Like, I know that, like, the Toronto geography is something that people talk about mm-hmm. all the time of being like, you can see, like, this and that in the, like, right. backgrounds of the panel, blah, blah, blah. Uh, like, he's really not doing that here. It is definitely, like, a more simplistic style most of the time. And especially when they're in the car, like, what you see out the window, if it's not just white, is is really just, like, the outlines of kind of the topography of the place yeah it's it's so i alluded to like the manga influence he is uh, a big manga fan he in that instagram story that i mentioned uh it's really funny he posts the last like unfinished page of uh brian's version of x power in which he has drawn like in a pretty classic like Jim Liefeld, like, or, or uh, Rob Liefeld, like Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri inspired, you know, mid to late 90s style. Uh, uh, like a woman, a su- an ex woman, basically, mm-hmm. wearing like a skin tight thing and like, you know, posed, uh, posed to death wearing her sort of like bikini outfit. And he writes of it uh, This is the last page of the last issue. I think it's funny that I stopped making X Power at the exact moment. <laughs> Uh, oops, it skipped ahead. I think it's funny that I stopped making X Power at the exact moment. I clearly started to think girls were more interesting than comics. A few months later, I was getting deep into manga because manga had better girls. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he he uh, pivots to to manga for sure, and I feel like that is something that people really latch onto with his art. Mm-hmm. And, and I just like. You're I don't want to say I person. don't see it. I, I, it's true. I have not read a lot of manga. I don't want to say that I don't see it at all because there, like, yeah, there is an influence there, especially sort of like the chibi, uh, you know, styles. Like, I think, I think that is where I sort of see it the most. But I have read, like, I mentioned Bone already, which is something that he brings up a lot. I have seen him mention Jamie Hewlett as well. Um, of of gorillas is probably what you would know him best for. Like he designs all the all okay. The characters I can definitely, I can really see gorillas, especially right. in, like the faces. And I'm like, I see a lot. I feel like I see a lot more of Jeff Smith and Jamie Hewlett even in this than I do any like again like put a gun to my head and say name five manga artists mangaka and and like uh, yeah pull the trigger classic uh, (laughs) summation to that like i i couldn't i couldn't name five manga artists probably to save my life so to say like i don't see anyone specific in his style is like yeah you're not coming from a place you don't yeah (laughs) that's that's not exactly like an educated stance um but like just speaking like sort of broadly stylistically now I don't know enough about either Jamie Hewlett or Jeff Smith to say to the extent to which their art might have been influenced by manga and and maybe some of the things that I sort of attribute to their influence actually are also like sort of by way of the Japanese style and and uh, industry. But but yeah, do you like do you see a big like manga influence in the art? It's interesting because I think he is, like, his art is very singular, and so there are times that I can see it more and times that I can see it less. I think a lot of, like, the facial expressions and, like, but then, like, I think the biggest difference is, like, the eyes almost, where, like, Mm -hmm. his, a lot of his art looks like, if this makes, this is a weird way to describe it, but, like, there'll be, like, in manga, like, a, 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 
and this is sort of what you were saying with the chibi that there is like a standard character design and but then like if they're like side-eyeing someone then it's like their eyes right. become slits and like their yeah, mouth yeah. Like, becomes small and like in the corner and be like blah blah blah, blah. Uh, it's like I, I feel like I see more of that and so that's maybe why you don't see like the direct sort of like like you don't you don't see like Naruto in this or like you don't see like right. Bleach or like things like that certainly but maybe you see more of like the the cartoonish nature of it yeah like I, like yeah I def it's not that I don't see anything at all I just feel like the first thing people say when they talk about his art is like like huge manga influence like the fingerprints of of manga are like all over this <laughs> and and then I read it and I'm like. Is this vaguely racist? <laughs> like, is is yeah, there an I extent mean, to which people are kind of like, oh, Asian creator? He must have, like, and, and I mean, part of it is that like he is a huge manga fan. He talks about loving manga. He, I, I'm sure he would say that manga has been a huge influence on his work. And I still feel, in light of that, that like that influence is potentially overstated. Yeah, and maybe it is just like that. Most, I mean, certainly like. Scott Pilgrim ends up becoming like such a mainstream phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, like that, that, that style is just like not a style that people are used to seeing in like mainstream American comics. I think that for most people, mainstream American comics either looks like, like Garfield or mm-hmm. like for better or worse and like that, or it looks <laughs> like a superhero comic. And so I think like, yeah, a more stylized, like cute, almost art style uh, like where the characters look like this and like sort of like have like big disproportionately large heads and big disproportionately large eyes and things like that. Yeah. That that becomes... Although like the big eye thing is not really like, if you compare the size of the character's eyes in this to like what he'll do with Scott Pilgrim, like the big eye thing has like not even <laughs> hit the tip of the iceberg yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I think that, and so I think that just it's because it's closer to mo- like, I mean like certainly if you had a spectrum that was like super like formal, like Alex Ross on one side Mm -hmm. and then like, I don't know, like some, some manga thing on the left side, he would certainly be more towards the left side of that spectrum. Don't you think? Or or maybe he's like in the middle. Yeah. I, I, I guess I probably would like, he's definitely not to the left of like, mainstream american comics i guess is what i'm saying yeah like he's definitely less interested in realism even than superhero comics Mm -hmm. which like are are already not that interested in realism but then i think especially also like you take the time into consideration like the mid-2000s it's like well yeah i was just about to say like i I feel like there's a big like sort of webcomic influence mm-hmm. as well. And he has talked about like he was a webcomic creator before, like really going all in with his with his like professional stuff. And, you know, the webcomics community, I feel like is another place where the influence of manga is like massive and like so much bigger than the influence of any you know mainstream superhero comics or the american comic industry like definitely like if you if you took a straw poll of web comics creators and especially early web comics creators way more of them would have kind of gotten into comics through manga than through superhero comics so there there may also just be an extent to which like the marriage of styles at this point in 2022 is so complete 
in some ways like the the influence of manga is now so much like kind of part of how european and north american creators make their art that when i look back at something that is manga inspired i'm like i don't see it this just looks like you know western art you know there could be there could be an element of that at play and certainly like yeah like you're saying the period is is like the height of like like you know the news talking about this japan ma that is uh, coming in from overseas these cartoons like yeah and and, I, you know kids kids being crazy for it etc cetera, etc cetera. and i also think that like as comics have sort of become more mainstream that 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 a diversity in art styles is much more understood and accepted nowadays whereas like in the 90s it would have been like either either it looks like a superhero or it looks really like a superhero um and (laughs) you know if you think of i would say like his art is still very distinct like if this debuted today and scott pilgrim didn't exist it would still be like oh yeah there's like nothing out there that looks like this for sure but uh, yeah and i I, i'm just sort of thinking like at this time so like let's say it's like uh, i don't think it was like in bookstores by 2005 but like (laughs) let's say it's 2005 you know i'm thinking of are like neighborhood chapters yep. which classic riley Malley's probably been inside i would imagine uh yeah that seems like a probably pretty reasonable guess <laughs> um but it's like you have like the graphic novel section and it's like you have like the shelf with the superhero comics and you have the shelf with the manga which shelf are you putting scott pilgrim on and i feel like you would easily you're putting it with the manga right like yeah i would say that would be most likely for sure yeah, and so I think that that is, like, at, at that time when, like, that dichotomy was sort of just beginning to become established, and he, even though he exists outside of that dichotomy to some extent, he is still so much close, he, I think it's just that he is so far removed from superhero comics, and the fact that Scott Pilgrim became mainstream, then, like, sort of, like, it, it forced his work into that dichotomy. And because it is so divorced from superhero comics, that that then became like, well, it's more manga than it is superhero comics, so it's manga. Right. I have just put into the chat there a link to one of the pages from his Hopeless Savages miniseries, and I will shortly be sending you also a link uh, to the art from the original Hopeless Savages miniseries, which... Uh, he i think he lettered possibly but did not have any role in creating the art of and i think it's interesting yeah it's interesting to look at because it is also art that i would be like this has like a pretty apparent like manga inspiration to my eye Mm -hmm. yeah i think that i'm looking at this uh well certainly uh are are you saying that his work or that hopeless savages in general has this i I would say like the hopeless the original hopeless savages art has as much of a manga influence or possibly like even more so yeah that last the last panel of the original page that you linked to is like it's those like shiny glossy eyes and and like the shape of the eyes and all that is like and the hair and the way that the hair is textured especially like the the character uh, this is very silly that we're just talking about an image that we're looking at like (laughs) the the way the hair is like textured and shaded on the character in the foreground to me that like is so anime or manga and whereas like you know the other the other panels you can certainly see the influence but it feels Mm -hmm. more like a hybrid of the style like 
that sort of reminds me of like I don't know even know if this is right, but like Invincible maybe. And would you say that that has manga influence as well? <sighs> that is maybe and, like trending more towards the superhero side with the manga yeah, peppered in. But but yeah, but like the where I would say more so of the like the manga influence is there is in like the dynamic action and like you know the the various sort of effects that are separate from the style of like the the aesthetics of the characters like mm-hmm. i think the manga element comes in a lot more so yeah in in the dynamic action and especially in the scenes where like especially later invincible has this kind of reputation for like ultra violence and like a lot of gore and i think that like once you get the gore in there the way that they kind of like use that to sort of like emphasize the physics of what's what's being depicted is is very like manga-ish in a way mm-hmm. yeah and and i think like you know, like I think definitely the the original panel you linked looks so much more like someone like thoughtfully trying to do a manga thing, whereas like Brian Lee O'Malley, like it's like yes, I can certainly see manga influence like all over this, but it looks like Brian Lee O'Malley art. It doesn't look like yeah. manga art. Whereas like yeah. the last like this page, it's like I wouldn't necessarily be able. to to distinguish this as like the work of a singular artist like it and maybe that's just a lack of familiarity but well yeah i I, like if you look at the again talking about an image that (laughs) we're both looking at but i feel like you could clip out the like large head shot from the like the bottom panel with no text and like post it somewhere and could just be like anyone know what manga this is from and no one would be like that's not from a manga People would right. be like, "Huh, I don't recognize." Like, it's so much in the style that it's like, yeah, it it is. It just is very much in the style. Right. I absolutely. Is there what else we want to talk about? Have we sort of talked about uh, one thing that I sort of was thinking about is like the the presence of these non-existent characters in the book, um, and you know, I'm thinking of Stillman, the best friend, and her mom. Mm-hmm. Who are just mm-hmm. sort of who are like people who orbit the story and have such a big impact on the story, but then like we never really see them depicted. Especially Stillman, like we don't even see like right. what he looks like really. He's a ghost, and we never hear him like say words. Right. And I was just I'm interested in the nature, especially the Stillman thing. <laughs> like his non-existence, I think, is like a very clear like intentional artistic choice. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like, what what he was going for there. Yeah, I, th- I think that as sort of, like, the easiest thing that comes to mind for me is that if it is supposed to be sort of, like, a story of self-discovery, then it's, kind of like, it's important to remind us and, and, like, establish for us, like, who have been the voices that have, like, kind of defined who she is for her up to this point and in a big way it's her mother and her best friend and then most recently Stillman are are these people that she has kind of tied her identity to especially in terms of like the whole like I have no soul thing is is sort of a way of expressing like not like really being sure of of who you are as like an individual and so rooting herself in the like thoughts feelings opinions desires of these other people even when she doesn't like she still feels like she doesn't have a soul quote unquote it it like provides her a lens through which she can understand herself and so it's like you know this this whole 
trip is sort of about her taking those sort of first steps towards establishing an identity that is her own and so we need to like have reminders of those those other lenses both because of like their impact up to this point and in terms of how they're they're sort of like the forces that she has to resist in a way in order to sort of establish herself as an individual but also they can't actually be there when the like book isn't about her like confronting and overcoming those people it's about her just like learning what it means to be herself apart from them yeah and yeah that's such an interesting thing with Stillman in particular because like it what's interesting to me is that the story the Stillman story doesn't end with like a heartbreak is like it's more about how like this is the first time that like I felt positively about a relationship and like felt okay and now it's gone but it's not because like anything bad happened it's just like it ended but then now like it seems it has like the flavor of a breakup without being a breakup because she seems so like regretful over it. And then there's this whole business with the letter and I'm, I'm curious, just it's, it's an interesting choice. Like I'm maybe it's sort of the idea that like, it's sort of the uncertainty and maybe that's what it's representative of, of her like sort of uncertainty about the future. Yeah. I I think it's, it's, like when we learn about like exactly what happened with Stillman, I think is supposed to sort of be like the key that unlocks Raleigh for us in some ways where it's like, you know, we, the, the space has been created this whole time to imagine this like grand and tragic heartbreak right. or like he must've done something like so terrible to her to like leave her in this place or like this, this sort of like way of being and to, like instead come to the realization of like like we don't really even know what Stillman thinks the future of the relationship is because they don't talk about it directly to each other he leaves her this note and she doesn't uh, talk to him again before she leaves and she hasn't read the note so we don't like we don't actually have like for all we know the note says like that was awesome like can't like hope you can come back again soon like we don't really know anything about what it says and so it's it's not so much that like that discovery tells us anything about Stillman or or anything about their relationship so much as it's like oh like this is sort of like the extent of and the ways in which like Raleigh is like messed up basically and and the things that like when she is sort of most like in crisis about herself she looks at and is like why can't I even like bring myself to open this letter that I don't even know what it says like it's it's yeah his his like ghostly presence I think is less to do with him and more to do with how she relates to positive things in her life how she relates to relationships and and like he's he's almost more so sort of like her a representation of her fear of insecurity or mm-hmm. her fear of like losing the things that she cares about as opposed to like almost anything to do with Stillman the actual person or her relationship with him. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like she she is she's more upset and anxious about like uncertainty 
and like the possibility of loss than she is about the actual loss maybe now so this is like kind of also ties in so like cats obviously are like a strong recurring motif and then it this is all kind of just clicking together for me now in the like promo strip that was like posted on oni.com it's of her like pretending to be asleep in the back seat of the car and listening to Dave and Ian have a conversation about Schrodinger's cat, which I'm like just now being like, oh, and like the letter is like a Schrodinger's cat of like their relationship in terms of like, I know that like probably the hard, you know, quantum physicists out there are like, that's not what Schrodinger's cat is supposed to be about. But uh, like in terms of like the common, you know, conception yeah. of it. it it is very much about like uncertainty and the idea of like you exist in both states until you until know you sort truth. of like know which state you actually exist in yeah which which that's like a helpful realization for me because mo- like both t- this is the second time i've read it and both times i kind of finished and was like so what was up with the cats like what's their <laughs> whole thing <laughs> but but yeah i do th- like i think the letter really is uh supposed to be in that sort of like schrodinger's cat zone and yeah that the the uncertainty of it is both sort of the the legend by which we like come to more fully understand her character and also like the source of tension that sort of kicks off what narrative action there can said to be yeah can be said to be and that that's i think very well observed and you know i think that that uh, that there's a, a direct time where it's like Dave or whichever one it is he say he says in the the two page strip he says I keep thinking about that cat I mean wouldn't it just be alive or dead you know one or the other not both and that ties very directly into the conversation they have at the end where it's like where she directly says like uh, Stephanie says I'd be dead if I was you and Raleigh says, I think I'm dead, seriously. And then and Raleigh has to be <laughs> the one who, like, validates her existence in a way. To just be like, you are alive. Like, it, yeah. you're, you are not dead. Like, and that, and that throughout the book, she is sort of existing in both these states. And maybe that's what the, the lack of soul is. That it's like, I'm alive. Like, I have a human body. But, like, inside, I am dead. And, I just, and like, she just needs the acknowledgement that she is alive in order to like you know someone has to open the box right and and i think it ties in as well with like very prominently at the end but also at another point in the book she talks about like sort of the experience of lying under the stars and looking up at the stars and how that's sort of like a transportative experience for her that reminds her of like all these other times in her life when she looked up at the stars and being like it's the same sky it's the same stars and like that sort of ability to enter into multiple states at the same time is is in some ways also like kind of how she comes to terms with the whole thing is to like look up again and be like i am like the same person i was then and like you know i'm the same person i was at 11 i'm the same person i was at 15 i'm the same person i was at 18 and i'm also like not any of those people like there's there's that sort of like i guess ownership both of like the reality of her experiences and the impacts that they have had on her as a person and the acknowledgement, which has kind of been her limiting factor up to this point that like, those are only as defining, I guess, as she sort of chooses for them to be. And, and I guess you can kind of frame this story as her like learning how to choose which experiences matter. 
Yeah, I think, and you know, I think that that's an interesting thing because I sort of, I like the way that it doesn't sort of, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of like ascribe meaning to itself. Like at the end, like I think, you know, obviously there's this whole monologue at the end, which is sort of the emotional crux of of the whole thing. And one of the things that she like says is, uh, I don't understand exactly what's happened, and I'm bad at putting things together in any meaningful way. But tonight is important. This moment is important. I think that that is sort of gets to what you were saying that like, even, and maybe that goes back to the sort of Brian is the true artist kind of thing, where it's like, <laughs> it doesn't ha, it doesn't maybe like fit into a clean narrative in a way that makes sense because it is like a weird, like it's a funny ending that it's like they have this moment but then like you said like there's no flash forward there's no like conclusion really like the conclusion they don't even they don't even reach their destination in terms of like the road trip and you know like any any road trip story is sort of like you know either the like the climax or or the second act climax or you know reaching the destination is usually part of an important part of the narrative of a story that is structured around a road trip and we leave them like they don't even know <laughs> what state they're in they're they're like i think we're in oregon i think we're in california we're not really sure like and i don't know maybe there's there's probably lots of like strong thematic resonance there in terms of like they're not going somewhere they're going home where they're trying to go home and and so like getting where they're going is not really what the trip is about so much as it is like a functional necessity of what they what the trip they took actually was about which for like the three other kids was this like kind of adventurous road trip and for her was the visit to Stillman it's it's like it's kind of an interesting like sort of anti-road trip story in that way mm. where it's like I'm not going to do like the journey to the destination and that's where like their life is either changed or like is not changed in a disappointing way that they then have to learn to reckon with. It's like, I'm going to do the drive back and right. Like kind of having like, you know, the, the high or low or whatever is like sort of wearing off and like, how are they going to long-term be affected by kind of like the events of the trip. That's kind of like what the, what the ride back is like for in some ways. Mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm talking myself uh, higher and higher up on this (laughs) book (laughs) as we go. I was, I was surprised by it because I think that I, you know, it's a very, and maybe this is just sort of like what at the time I was getting into Scott Pilgrim and someone was telling me about Scott Pilgrim or I was reading Wikipedia or whatever. And I was like, yeah, like, he did Scott Pilgrim, and then also, like, he, he you know, it's a classic, like, first feature kind of thing, right. where it's like, he did this thing. He also did this. Yeah, it's like, he did this <laughs> thing, and then, like, he did the real thing, which is Scott Pilgrim. And it's yeah. like, you know, Scott Pilgrim is great, and it makes perfect sense why that broke into the mainstream and Lost at Sea was not, like, didn't sell, like, 50 million copies. Uh, but, you know, like, this this has things to it and it has things to it that um that scott pilgrim doesn't have and i think that you know it's it's maybe a little john green core if i can introduce <laughs> that uh that into the equation here yeah it's it, there's there's a like a portrait of the artist as a young woman <laughs> young uh, certainly at uh, at play um john green is a, is maybe a good way to put it yeah <laughs> just like you know the road trip of it and also like i think maybe this is like a very like 2000s thing where it's like the 
and I think the anti-climax of the book sort of goes into this, that it's like... Yeah, and like post-romance in some ways. Mm-hmm. That, like that, not, not that there is no romance, but that like the romance is not really what it's about, even yeah. though it gives you hashtag all the feels, hashtag Tiffios feels, etc. Sure, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> we, all, we all know these. <laughs> we all know this. Uh, but yeah, Shout like, out to Kenan. The fact that the story is sort of about like, the acceptance that your life is not a story, I think, is such a big thing in a lot of John Green's work. Yeah. And I think that that is, like, that that is what this is as well, to some extent. Like, this is not, like, a grand love story. It's an acknowledgement that, like, you know, sort of the, the acknowledgement of, like, the mundanity, but also the profundity right. of existence like like real life is kind of boring and that doesn't mean that like the feelings matter less or are less real yeah and that's something that you know she talks about this at the beginning of the book that like your life story isn't like and he basically says like isn't inherently interesting like your life Mm -hmm. story is only really made up of like the discrete interesting moments that happened during your life and this and that's sort of this is maybe sort of like a refutation of that and you know that's maybe that sort of gets back to like the nature of like who Raleigh is that like she she like she sees these futures she sees like all of these things that could or could not happen and then also like with the letter it's like she's she ascribes so much meaning to something that like she doesn't even know like the nature of and right. and needs to like learn to do less of that and just like right be free as she puts it yep yeah it's definitely a weird like if i was one of the like 15 people who read this when it first came out i would never i mean scott pilgrim is already such like an idiosyncratic everything that who how would you ever predict that anyone was ever going to make scott pilgrim right i guess but but certainly i wouldn't read this and be like you know what this guy's next thing is gonna be i bet (laughs) (laughs) um and at the same time like if like most people including my own actual self like you don't i don't think anyone reads scott pilgrim and is like oh time to like go back to the first thing he did I bet it's going to be like a very straight-faced emotional like coming of age story, which is like not that those things aren't present in Scott Pilgrim, mm-hmm. but I would say that like as much of that as there is in Scott Pilgrim, like cut that down to like a third and then that is like how much comedy is in Lost at Sea. <laughs> um where it's just like let's see let me this this guy wrote like the definitive like epic gamer love like romantic comedy he really of, did go like gamer the mode. 2000s he 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 sure did go epic gamer mode i will talk about um and like let's let's you know predict what his first work must have been like and then it's like ah this <laughs> yeah this like road trip coming of age with zero pop culture references and like three jokes <laughs> but i also like it's like it's so clear that this is like an important work in his development as an artist. And it's also like, oh, yeah, totally. And it's like, I think that that is what keeps Scott Pilgrim from being like ready player one. Like, I think that that yeah. is like the defining factor is like the emotional self-awareness and like, you know, I think he does like tap into something like to, to do, to make this like in your early twenties while also like not, you know, like, 
not having like a paper towns or looking for Alaska to like sort of be referring mm-hmm. back to You're right to like be the the like urtext exactly and so like I think having like the wherewithal to make something like this at this age like is indicative of like an an introspection and a, like an emotional sort of intelligence about him which is which is what makes scott pilgrim i think like i think that's what makes that work to such a huge extent like that's that's what keeps it from being the epic gamer comic and like what makes him worth like reading into as a creator because like we're not doing the bibliography of ernest klein (laughs) respectfully (laughs) although we'll talk about that i mean that's Um, the podcast (laughs) (laughs) i do also think that like what this does have in common with Scott Pilgrim is what what makes like part of the DNA of what makes Scott Pilgrim so good, which is that he has like kind of nailed the hangout and like the vibe of like four friends like just kind of hanging out and BSing in a car where there's like nothing to do but talk because like you can't agree on the music and you'd not like you don't really know where you're going and the only agenda is like we need to go as far as we can today like before we have to stop and he he puts you like in the car in a way that is not like mind-numbingly boring but still captures like sort of the realism of being like in a car with you know a bunch of good friends and everybody's kind of like overtired and like a little loopy and like just just like yeah kind of like he's he can do a good hangout vibe and scott pilgrim has like a lot more room for that but also is a lot more story driven in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways whereas this is just sort of like in between like inner monologues it is just sort of like a hangout comic um and he's all like he's good at it like Mm -hmm. he knows how to make that feel both natural and not like totally asinine and boring (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I was we haven't really talked about the dialogue, but I was interested like because I think he is sort of like working in a space that has become such a big like such a big space or like has been incorporated into the mainstream so thoroughly. Like the one mm-hmm. the one part that really stuck out to me is uh like it's at the very beginning when they're talking about like the rules for driving. It's like uh it's like no driving off a cliff, no cliffs or into a wall of flame. I never thought about the wall of flame. The wall of flame. Whereas, well, that's like, mammoth, right? That's I guess like, so, that's yeah. That's pure mammoth. Because that's, that's also, you know, around this same time, Brian Michael Bendis is working on Ultimate Spider-Man, where, like, the whole, the call and response thing is something that is, like, a straight-up meme, like, in the comic book world now, where, like, anytime, like, if someone on Reddit posts a page from a Brian Michael Bendis comment, guaranteed, like the top like five parent comments are all going to be about the dialogue and then like an ensued discussion of like is it good or bad (laughs) and like he was so much better before like blah 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 but like he is also a guy who is like David Mamet is like my god (laughs) like my writing like ideal like everything I I strive to do is to like be like David Mamet in terms of getting that like naturalistic dialogue and you know writing dialogue that like sounds like real people quote unquote without all of the sort of like ums and you know the the verbal tics but even then like including now Bendis does this way more than what uh, what O'Malley is doing in this or in anything else as far as like he will 
put in the repeated words he will put in the ums he'll put in the likes in a way that makes it like so naturalistic that you can like almost hear people's voices but also is what makes it very distracting when people are like captain america doesn't say like or um or like repeat the same word five times because he's like trying to you know grasp the the next word that he's trying to think of 15-year-old Peter Parker can do that, but it's annoying when, like, Captain America is doing it or Iron Man is doing it or Doctor Strange, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Anyways, but all that to say, like, that that kind of thing, you know, to know from O'Malley that, like, David Mamet is an inspiration for him, like, it, it just tracks. Like, yeah. that makes sense to me. Yeah, and maybe it's just because, like, to me, and maybe I'm off base here, like, I haven't read a ton of Bendis, but, like, to me... I think Bendis feels like the biggest inspiration for like the MCU to me and maybe, and you know, both in terms of like the, the stories, but also just like the, the sort of like the dialogue of it all and things like that. And so maybe that's what, like, because that has become so pervasive and because that has become like default blockbuster movie dialogue, I mean, like it is very, like, I think the wall of flame that that sort of verges into like the, (laughs) so that happened core, which people talk about like very derisively a lot. And I think that like, he is often very good at like, I love his dialogue. I mean, especially in Scott Pilgrim, like the dialogue is so good and sort of like his, what I think he's good at and why, which is sort of ironic because it's sort of the opposite of the wall of flame and, or maybe it's a cousin of it is that like, he can be so blunt and sort of the the a lot of the humor can be landed in the bluntness like so you have at the beginning of this book you have like her sort of going into her whole like life story and things like that and then the start of a page is anyway i was born <laughs> and like that like <laughs> that is a very brian lee Malley joke and where it's where it's like in scott pilgrim where it's like we should go do this thing and then the the yeah. like next page is like and so they did and that yeah. bluntness, I think, is, like, the source of a lot of humor for him. And so that's kind of ironic because it's sort of the opposite of <laughs> that that sort of bantering back and forth and, like, tagging the same joke, like, three different times. It's just, like, hits it and then, like, lets it go. Yeah. I, I mean, like, yeah. I definitely, I think that the MCU is based a lot on the Ultimate Universe, and Bendis is like one of the architects mm-hmm. of the Ultimate Universe, so there is a lot of him in there. But also, it's like the Whedonization of the Ultimate Universe. Sure. And you know, like if you go back and hit Buffy, like a lot of that stuff is already is already kind of baked into mm-hmm. what Whedon does. And I wouldn't be surprised if Whedon is also someone who is like Mamet is like my rating god. <laughs> um, it, as far as kind of like capturing capturing that voice as well. So I like. Yeah, when I'm when I'm thinking of like it's tricky at this point, right? Cuz the MCU's not a thing. Buffy is a thing. I don't know if he was like a Buffy guy. I I don't know if he was an Ultimate Spider-Man guy, but like certainly it's it's sort of in the air. And even like I don't want to put it all like, you know, at Mammoth's feet. Like that even like like Seinfeld does that kind of thing all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just oh, like totally. there's an extent to which it's like sort of just like a comedy thing and especially like like a hangout comedy. Like any any you know, the show about nothing, obviously you're gonna have lots of scenes where four friends like sit around and kind of like keep repeating jokes back at each other. And part of what is funny about it is like how they you know, that that back and forth like is the source of a lot of the comedy. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, yeah, I, I do think there's an element of like it's just kind of in the air at that. Yeah, point. I was I was just sort of curious about like w- like I was like where is this coming from at this time because now it's like well so much stuff sounds like this but at the time I was yeah. like what is he drawing or like you know what influence are we feeling here and I was like is it like Sex in the City <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think Buffy yeah. you're absolutely right that that's what what it is is like Buffy or I, even I, like I, other teen sort of soap kind of things yeah I would I would say that like Buffy Gilmore Girls as well oh, would yeah. be a huge one and then like again knowing that he likes Mamet knowing that he's a comics professional working at a time when Ultimate Spider-Man is at the height of its powers you know knowing that he is like what like five years post Seinfeld four years yeah. post Seinfeld like all those kinds of things that that sort of quippy dialogue based and like naturalistic like you're in the room sort of style humor where you know everyone kind of wants to imagine that like that's what it would be like to hang out with your friends um <laughs> and so i do think that yeah that's that's there's lots of things probably feeding into that yeah absolutely anything else do we need to talk uh do we want to get into gifted talk <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Well, you were in the gifted program, were you? I was not I was not in gifted program in elementary school. I was in one gifted class all through high school. Gifted English. At the recommendation of yeah, my grade eight teacher was like, You should be in a gifted English Certainly. class and I was like, If you say so and mum was like, Yeah <laughs> So so I was in gifted English and nothing else, which in retrospect weird, but also something that like nobody ever commented on or like, you know, because being in gifted English class meant that I was in like the gifted cohort for just that one class, which was like the same kids, right? You know, it's the same 30 kids for four years in all the same classes. And nobody was ever like, how come this is the only class other than band that I have with you? Well, <laughs> you know, as I can speak from experience here as someone who was uh-huh. more, well, I mean, this isn't to say I'm <laughs> smarter than you, although the, school system seems to think so uh, <laughs> but I, yeah i was like from you know grade four or whatever in like the gifted program which in elementary school was like one week out of like a month or two months or three months something like that and that was like a whole thing we did which like was maybe pointless but you know served as a pretty good distraction Um, now are you sure you weren't one of the fake gifted kids being brought in to make the real gifted kids not feel weird it's possible it's plausible uh but yeah and then you know the for me gifted classes in high school was like sort of like he said like the full the full gifted cohort and then gradually like with every passing year like Maybe I'm not People in... just switched into, like, the university and mixed uh, tracks. Yeah, well, I mean, particularly for science for me, it was, like, grade 9, well, gifted yeah. science. Grade 10, academic science. Grade 11, <laughs> no science. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly people, like, I don't think it was... Maybe in grade 9, it was more of a thing where you did have, like, four gifted classes and, like, you saw, like, the same, like at least like two thirds of the same people on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Uh, but you know, I, it wasn't a thing where it's like, we are like the class that is the gifted class. Right. Like, I don't think I, yeah, ever I think, that way. I think my grade had a little bit more of that. Maybe it, maybe it was a smaller group than I'm sort of like generalizing broadly, but I can think of probably like 10 kids who definitely were in gifted 
all gifted classes the whole way through. Yeah, and I mean, like, certainly, like, my first, like, high school friendships came out of those classes, and so there is, like, a bit of, like, a shared thing there, but, you know, I don't, I don't, it was never really thought of in that way, I don't think, so don't worry, you weren't, is what I'm saying, it's like, (laughs) you weren't, like, people weren't, like, David's here, (laughs) the you <laughs> the guy who isn't in the freaking gifted science class yeah and just to be clear even though neither of us took any science past grade 10 we do think science is epic well i fucking love science <laughs> what if it was the assassin's creed if only isn't there only three lines i was to gonna say two lines I believe to the assassin's, assassin's creed. creed is just that nothing is true everything is permitted which yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool when you really think. Good creed. Yeah, good creed. <laughs> One of the cooler creeds up there with the band. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say up there with Creed Two. Sure. I mean that training montage of the desert. That's so cool. Um, How can it be beat? But yes, uh, Creed from Office uh, is really random. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna literally just drop us in from the Creed talk. Like, cut all the sign talk and just drop us in from the Creed talk. No listener that you were just spared. Like such a long pointless pointless conversation (laughs) (laughs) um but i don't think i have anything more to say about that i have no sales numbers uh for lost at sea probably to the surprise of no one i mean this is a classic no wikipedia article which i hate because it really impacts my ability to research truly this is what o'malley wrote in that like kind of career summary uh, post that I was describing earlier. Mm-hmm. Lost at Sea came out in 2000, December 2003. I was like, yay, but the truth was nobody really cared. It got a few reviews on comics blogs. I was immediately back to work on my next book. My publisher, whom I had only met like once and who probably thought I was just a totally sensitive young man, asked if I wanted to do a series. I had this idea I'd been thinking of for a year or so and pitched it. It's like teen hijinks with fighting. Blue Monday meets Dragon Ball. And they said that sounded great, so I sat down and did scott pilgrim volume so yeah like no no sales numbers i think this was something that like people didn't really even know existed until they put out the like 10 year anniversary edition Mm -hmm. uh in 2014 which is not the 10 year anniversary as we discussed previously but uh yeah and i will talk about this maybe more so with scott pilgrim but bizarre decision to like add color to this but not it's like sculptor color there's like a red like shading tool that is used at points yeah that's it's interesting i did read that version did you read the did or did did. not i did as well yeah which like and i mean like it's normal (laughs) it's yeah I, i will say like it probably does look better than just like the straight black and white in terms of like the dynamics well, of it. And mostly and, I think is what yeah. that's. But, but like, I think that it probably, it like, he's not replacing shading. Right. Like, I think he's basically adding right, shading, exactly. which I think does change the art quite a bit. But like, by and large, like I don't really get the, the desire seemingly to colorize his art <laughs> like it's like true. the scott pilgrim color versions i'm just like yeah i, I don't know yeah, maybe maybe I, one I, of us i just often i'm like someone like if, if it's made for black and white then like it probably wasn't made to have color added to it like black and white line art that is made to be colorized is done differently from black and white art that is meant to be black and white art so like 
I just don't really get the obsession and, with like, you know what we should do. I know it's just an excuse to like re-release it. But. And also like mangas in black and white 95% of the time. <laughs> so like, Yeah. Well, I mean, most, most indie comics are in black and white because like they don't have the time or money to color yeah. it, <laughs> which, you know, may have, may have also been a factor, but yeah, I, that, that is an impulse that like, I don't fully understand and i do like do you think there's a just sort of like a bit of a stigma against black yes, and white comics that people percent. feel for some reason is like oh they're somehow like cheaper or like less professional or like what well it's just like it's boring like people think it say like it's just less interesting like people don't like black and white movies like even though mm. the black and white movie like can... belfast is a masterpiece yeah. and there are some <laughs> others that were also in black and white i assume uh <sighs> Well, uh, do you have a source on that? Macbeth, and I think that's it. Well, Macbeth is about like black white relations, I think. Because <laughs> it's about an interracial in marriage. Yeah, <laughs> this is really getting into dangerous territory. Uh, no, we're good. Uh, <sighs> so <laughs> that's we're we're really coming down after after our creed talk. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I suppose that that is all for now. You know, and you know, we'll we'll dive into the Scott Pilgrim of it all when we get to the Scott Pilgrim episode. But yeah, I mean, mm. I think I think that, like I said, I think this is a really interesting piece of foundation laying. I think it is so much better for his artistic development. And you know, I think that this maybe it's it's more that this is indicative of his interests than it is that like he was pressed into doing this or something and he really wanted to do his gamer <laughs> book um yeah but yeah like i think it is no i i don't think like i i can't imagine him making scott pilgrim without having made this for sure yes and scott pilgrim is so much the better for for having made this or at least the having the kind of sensibility that would lead an artist to make this is i guess what i'm thinking yeah. um but yeah so like you said they he is going to be asked to do a series by uh, Oni Press, and then he is going to make Scott Pilgrim. So we will be diving into that next week. With we're going to do First two yes, we're going to do two volumes at a time, just so we're not doing six episodes on Scott Pilgrim. Be excited for that. Be excited for everything else in this uh brian lee amalek series be excited for the episode you just listened to uh but i think that will do it for today for david and myself you can follow us on twitter at got the runs pod <laughs> you have nodded to me silently not of affirmation you can email us at got the runs pod at gmail.com is do we do anything else in the credits you can follow me um, on twitter at cs and david is not on twitter I have a Twitter account. Uh, I believe I have one tweet in the last seven years, which was, I have this podcast now. <laughs> That's demented. <laughs> see you in another seven years. And you were like, okay, see you. But that, I suppose, will do it for us today. This is one of the worst outros we've done. But until next time, That's to, to be, be continued. continued.